very high tech. Whenever I use it, it works better. So tonight we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to wrap up what is called the Emmanuel, I guess I'm going to call it the Emmanuel Discourse. It's a series of prophecies that Isaiah gives um, immediately following really the first six chapters that set up the whole book. So if you remember, when we look at the book of Isaiah, 1 through 5, we got Isaiah laying out this concept that here is Israel the way they are. Messed up, broken, do, they do bad stuff, they're over here. Then he tells another story about Israel, where everything is right, everything's good, everything's the way it ought to be. And then you start to discuss this concept, Isaiah starts to bring up the idea for us as we read it, how does that Israel become this Israel? How do we get there? And then Isaiah 6 hits. You remember in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6 Isaiah said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. So when Isaiah meets God, in Isaiah chapter 6, God, Isaiah says, woe is me, right? I'm, 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 I'm a mess. I'm that Israel. So God touches him and purges his sin with a coal from the altar of the throne of God. So the picture is that God purges Isaiah's sin, and then... God says, who will go for us? Who's going to tell the nations? Who's going to deliver the message that I have? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. So you get a picture in Isaiah's life of broken Isaiah. He's kind of a mess, but he meets God. God purges him of his sin, empowers him for ministry, and off he's able to go. So in those first six chapters, you got this, the, kind of the outline, right? How it's going to work. We're broken. We're, one day we're going to be made whole and perfect, and that happens when we meet God and He purges us of our sin. Then immediately in chapter 7, you have a promise, right? King Ahaz, you remember King Ahaz is, is tripping out because his enemies, he's in Judah, his enemies in Israel, northern kingdom, uh, they're going to come against him. And so he's so afraid of them that he reaches out to Assyria to make a pact. And Isaiah the prophet comes to Ahaz and says, why are you going to Assyria? I'm here. Well, why did you skip me? Why didn't you come to me, right? Ahaz is trying to solve his problems, the issues that he has on earth, trying to solve them with a peace treaty with, with Assyria. Now, maybe you know, maybe you don't, but Assyria ends up being the next bully on the block and conquering the whole world. So they're not going to turn out to be such a great friend. You guys with me? It'd be like in the, in, in, the, in the 30s and 40s reaching out to Germany. Saying, Germany, save us. Sure, we'll conquer you and then you can become Germans, right? So, same kind of idea. He's, they're looking to Assyria. So God says to Ahaz, look, Ahaz, I promise you, I'm going to deliver you. Ask me a sign. Any sign. High as the heavens or low as the grave. You tell me what you want, I'll show I'll prove it to you. And Ahaz says, no, Ahaz doesn't trust God. So then, this will be the familiar scripture we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks. Um, then the Lord says, well, then the Lord will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive, right? We all familiar Christmas time, uh, pointing to the virgin birth of Christ. 
But that chapter goes on. It doesn't just have that idea. It says a virgin will conceive, give birth to a child. And before that child knows the difference between right or wrong, I'll deliver you from the north, from those kingdoms who are coming against you. That begins what's called the Emmanuel Discourse. He's, he's trying, Isaiah is trying to teach King Ahaz and Judah that God is with us. So he says, you're going to call this child Emmanuel, which means... God with us, right? So he wants them to know, God's with you. Even in all this, even though you're still this Israel, you're still a mess, you're not that Israel yet, but God's still with you. And God wants to show that he's with you. But, but King Ahaz, he's, he's, he's not ready. He's not ready to, to make any kind of a commitment or nod toward the Lord. So, so he goes on and begins this discourse. Chapter 7, chapter 8, going into chapter 9. Now, Chapter 7 and chapter 8, you're, you're introduced to two child's names, two of Isaiah's children. And Isaiah names them after concepts of judgment that are going to come on the nation. So you, you remember their names. Um, I got them here. Uh, Shear Jashib and Mahir Shalel Hashbaz. So none of you are probably looking for that name for a child, right? You're not going to put that name up. So... Isaiah uses them and he says, me and the children that the Lord has given me are assigned to you. These are all pictures and concepts of what God's doing. Remember the overall concept. That Israel's becoming this Israel when God touches them and purges them of their sin. Then he looks at the immediate issue. You're, you're nervous about your enemies to the north. God says, I'm going to deliver you from them. But because you don't trust me, because you're not in a place where you can trust me, then this long and winding road leading to your deliverance is going to be a little longer maybe than you think it ought to be. But ultimately, God's goal in everyone's life is what? Is it, is it just so that we have more gold in the bank? Nicer house, better stuff? Or is God's purpose to make sure that you spend eternity with Him? And sometimes that means we got to get to a place where we're willing to kneel and look to Him and say, Lord, save me, right? You know, my kids, when we used to, when we lived in California, we, we spent two, three weeks at the beach every year, and we'd go out to the beach. My kids grew up at the beach, so they never really, except when they were little, little, you know, little kids are afraid. They run back and forth in the waves. But when they got older, they weren't afraid of it because they just been in it all the time. So sometimes, you know, it was good to take them out and, and provide them with a lesson of, of what the ocean can do. Because literally, you get caught up in a riptide, it takes you all of 20 seconds to be in some serious trouble. So, and then teaching them. For me, the best thing was to get in it. Riptides aren't hard to find, if you know what you're looking for. So you get in the riptide, let it suck you out, and then teach them. Don't fight the tide. Swim uh, parallel with the shore. Swim out of the riptide. Now you can swim forward. Don't panic. Teaching them that they don't have to be afraid because they can understand how deliverance can happen. And the same thing's happening with Israel. You guys don't have to be afraid of the north. You don't have to be all the, afraid of all these things. I'll show you. I'm going to deliver you. And not only am I going to do that, I'm going to get you from this Israel, sinful, wretched, broken Israel, to that Israel, holy, just, good, uh, um, Really, that Israel is the one everybody wants to be in. 
When I read uh, Isaiah chapter 11, you guys all know the verses. We always say them wrong. We say the lion lays down with a lamb, right? That's not in there. But the wolf does. <laughs> the wolf lies down with a lamb. A child plays at the cobra's den. There's no, nothing to be afraid of anymore. That's the point. Nothing to be afraid of anymore because all of the universe is in the, that perfect place in submission to God. So, so it's all about getting us to there. So these next seven verses we'll look at tonight, I doubt I'll get past that. A miracle could happen. But these seven kind of close out the Emmanuel Discourse, talking about the picture of children. But, but now, the, the focus initially in chapter 7 and 8 is to their immediate issues. The focus in chapter 9 is to that future deliverance. What Isaiah experienced in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is going to talk about for the nation of Israel in Isaiah chapter 9. And the idea is to help them realize that we can't have a total dependence on our own resources, our own abilities, our own things that we can do. That was the problem with Ahaz. He kept thinking the fix was a political solution. Right? Have you guys figured out for the United States our fix is not political? I don't care who you get in or what they do. Really, if I put blinders on, didn't watch the news, didn't read a newspaper, life pretty much is the same. So how do we get from this United States to that United States, the same way Isaiah, right? We meet the Lord, God purges our sins, and He delivers us. So we want to learn dependence on Him. Dependence on His light. On the light that He's going to show us. So look what He says in Isaiah 9 verse 1. Now, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time, in the latter days, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, or Galilee of the nations. So the point is, he's laying out how this next picture of deliverance is going to happen. Immediate deliverance, pictured in Isaiah's kids. A little further down the road, deliverance is going to be pictured in the coming of Messiah, Jesus Christ, who will purge the people of their sin that israel becomes this one just in submission to her messiah so he lays it out where is it that jesus is going to do the majority of his ministry he's going to do it around galilee right we're going to read about it when we get to when we're in the gospels you come on sunday mornings you hear me talk about it in luke but the idea that the light has come to the gentiles shining there in the galilee look at verse 2 The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. Keep in mind this little outline that I've been trying to describe. Dark, broken Israel gets a light shone upon them. It's like the picture of a sudden break of dawn. Like pitch black to boom, lights are coming on. So the people are in this deep darkness, in this pitch black... And bang, there's going to come light, like the suddenness of the dawn. In John chapter 1, listen to what it says. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. Now, what light do you think he's referring to? Yeah, he's referring to the light Isaiah is talking about. The light that's going to dawn where? In the, in the, in the Galilee. The light that pictures the ministry of Jesus Christ. 
He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light. So John the Baptist, not the light, right? But he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Exactly what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah chapter 9 happens. John points to it and says, here's that light. Matthew even is going, to, is going to point directly to Isaiah and say, this is what Isaiah the prophet was talking about. The light has come to the Gentiles. Look what it says in verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So here's what you want to see now. What Isaiah is talking about is what happens... When this light dawns, what is that light going to accomplish? Right now, Israel's that Israel. Right now, Israel's afraid of its neighbors. Israel's afraid of war. Israel's afraid of oppression. They're struggling. And so they're not filled with joy. They're, they're filled with fear. He's going to kind of build on that idea. But when the light comes, when the light comes, he's saying, when that happens, now you're going to have joy. Joy will sweep over the people. And the next couple of verses, you're going to describe why. How, how is it that that joy is going to sweep over the people? But here's what we have to understand. When we come to Scripture, and Scripture often talks to us about rejoicing, having joy, and we have a lot of circumstances it's hard to have joy in. Yes? So the, the Bible wants us to understand that our joy comes... From the Lord. Him. He's our joy. Not the stuff. Not the struggle. Not the issue. Not the hard times. Not the... We don't have to try to figure out, you know, how how to squeeze uh, the lemon of life and get that last little drop of joy. If we understand that the Lord is our joy. That it's Him. That it's that connection. It's that connection that would give Isaiah everything he needed to go forward and be the man God's calling him to be. It's that connection that would make Israel able to be the country that she wants to be. It's that connection that works in our individual lives. It's that connection that's necessary in our life. So what the Lord is laying out for them is instead of dwindling away, instead of seeing the population destroyed, the nation's going to swell and grow. Instead of harvest being meager or stolen, it's going to be abundant. Instead of them becoming the spoil, somebody else is going to steal all of their things, they're going to divide the spoil. They'll receive a treasure. What what God's dealing with here is all their fear. The fear of mankind as he looks out on a world that's kind of in chaos and he doesn't know what's going to happen. And the prophet is saying... When the light comes, he's going to turn your fear to joy. Not because you'll no longer be afraid of whatever the thing is, but you'll have a source of joy that you can tap into. If God is our source of strength for the things we face, he's also that source of joy to propel us, to give us the motivation necessary to continue. Right? When we despair, we give up. Yes? Everybody who despairs, they give up. Throw in the towel, whatever. But as long as you have joy, as long as you have hope, 
then you stay. God is that anchor, that which anchors us to our hope and to our joy. David said it like this in Psalm 27, 4. He said, one thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after. So there's one thing. Now, you know, if I'm honest, uh, I want more than one thing. Uh, On any given day, I maybe want 10 or 15 different things. My wanter is never quite out of wanting. But here David brought all of that desire, all of those things in his life that wanted to kind of pull him one direction or another down the road, and he focused them. He said, one thing have I desired, and I've asked, and this is what I'll seek for, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And for what purpose? Why does he want to be in the house of the Lord? So that I can gaze on the beauty of the Lord and inquire in the temple. The concept is that what God is looking for from you and I, according to Hosea, is that we would be faithful toward him, just like we would in any other relationship, right? If we're looking for a relationship friend or a spouse, faithfulness is kind of up high, right? Nobody likes to be best friends with a betrayer. So we can understand that idea. He wants faithfulness and the knowledge of God. He wants you to know him. Just like my wife knows me, I know her. It's just part of... It's part of the union, right? Being connected. That uh, I, I can't pull that uh, look. I can't look at my wife and look away and her say, what's the matter? And me go, nothing. Because she knows, right? We know what that look means. We know what that thing in your eyes is. You know, may not, we may not always know why it's there, but we know what it is. God's saying, I want you to know me and I want you to be faithful to me. Very similar things. So in verse 6 of Psalm 27, he says, So now my head will be lifted up above my enemies all around. That's the concept that God is going to to lift him. If you humble yourself before the Lord, what does he say? He'll exalt you, right? So he lifts him up. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. Joy comes out of that relationship with God. When we are in his temple, in his place, seeing his face, knowing God, brings out of me joy. Every time when, when the joy in my life is, is cut off, I can almost always point directly to missing that connection. I'm not spending the time I need to be spending with the Lord to stay tapped in to my joy. A lot of times Christians want to live their life like this. Remember when you used to play with magnets? Right? And we take magnets, and if you take magnet and you rub it up against something metal, it becomes magnetized, and it can pretend it's a magnet. And you can make, a, you know, whatever, another piece of steel act like a magnet, and you can pick, but eventually it runs out of juice, right? And so you got to go rub up against a magnet again, get it remagnetized, and then it'll do it again. And that's how we live our Christianity. We, we come back, rub up against Jesus, and then we've got the juice for a while, right? And then we run out of juice, and we go back and rub up against the magnet. But really what David is talking about here is I want to just stay connected to the magnet. Then I don't lose juice. I just want to stay in his presence. I want to stay in that place where, where his power is flowing through me. And this is the joy that Isaiah is talking about, the joy that will be increased the rejoicing before you as with the joy of harvest. 
as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Look at verse 4. For the yoke of his burden. So every time we see the word for, when we're studying the Bible, just say because. So why am I going to be joyful? Why? He says he's going to turn my fear to joy. How? Why? How's it going to happen? Because the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So what's he saying? Because the Lord has delivered from oppression. And that oppression, the concept is twofold. It's not only the spiritual idea of oppression from sin, it's also dealing with oppression from man. So it's not, we have a, sometimes we have a tendency to spiritualize everything and we forget that God also uh, delivers in the physical world as well. What's the key to being delivered from oppression from man? First, being delivered from oppression, uh, having the relationship between God and man right. If the relationship vertically between God and man is right, horizontally begins to work out. That's what's going to happen when this light dawns. When this light dawns, joy is going to come and the yoke is going to be broke of the oppressor. He's going to break the yoke. And it's not that he's going to break the yoke because he's more oppressive or he's more violent or he's more arrogant or he's more of all these things, but rather the yoke is going to be broken because he's going to rule in gentleness and kindness. Now, think Isaiah 9, what we just read, and then Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. So Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, means it fits. It's not going to rub your shoulders raw. And my burden is light. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's going to break the yoke of the oppressor. And he's going to yoke you together with him. So why will we have joy? Because this is going to be accomplished. And it's going to be accomplished, don't miss the last part of that verse, broken as in the day of Midian. You guys know what that is? There was this guy, once upon a time, was hiding down in a hole, threshing uh, wheat. So he's throwing the wheat up in the air. It's got to be miserable, right? Because to thresh wheat, usually wind is helpful. But if you're down in a hole, there's probably not very much of that. So you throw the wheat up in there, and the chaff all just comes down, in, gets between your sweat, between your shirt and your back. I'm sure it was very comfortable. About that time, an angel shows up and looks at him and says, Oh, mighty man of valor. His name was Gideon. God says to Gideon, hey, we got a problem with the Midianites. I'm going to need you to go to battle against them. So I want you to call the people to to war. And So Gideon's not sure about it, right? We all know the story about how he asked uh, for the fleece. He's got some, he wants to make sure this is God talking to him. And once he's sure, he calls the people, the people come out. And the Lord says, oh man, uh, you have too many. And Gideon looks at it and says, well, they still, they still have more than me, Lord. And the Lord says, yeah, you still have too many. Tell everybody who's afraid to go home. So he does so. And all the people who are afraid go home. And the Lord says, you have too many still. And so Gideon says, but Lord, they got more. Yeah, you still got too many. 
So go down to the to the brook, and I'm gonna I want you to let all the soldiers drink. And the ones who stoop on one knee, put on one side, and the ones who put their face in the water, put on the other side. And so he does so, and the whichever one had the least, God said that's the one. So with three hundred people, Gideon's three hundred, he's going to deliver the children of Israel in Midian. He's going to break the yoke of oppression because the Midianites were stealing all their grain. So if they went up on a hill and started threshing their wheat, and the Midianites go, look, somebody's threshing wheat, let's go. They'd go up there, kill them, and take all the wheat. That's oppression. God breaks the yoke of oppression in Midian. Then he says, when the light comes, just like God delivered with Gideon, God's going to deliver again. He's going to break the yoke of oppression. And that's something that we see Jesus accomplishing on the day when he comes. Verse 5, he says, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Again, what's that first word this this verse starts with? For. It's another because, right? So the first one was, uh, he's going to give us joy. That joy is going to flow. Why is that joy going to flow? Because... He's going to uh, set us free from the yoke of the oppressor, right? He's going to break the burden of the oppressor. How's he going to break the burden of the oppressor? He's going to make war to cease. No more war. That would be a pretty good day. No? I think the whole world's been trying to discover how to have no more war for quite a while. At least as long as I've been alive. And as far as I can tell, by any time I watch the news, we're ready for another one. It don't seem like we're that far from one side starting to shoot at the other. In fact, when that long ago happened at a softball game, didn't it? So, hey, the powder keg is ready to pop. But when the light dawns and he breaks the yoke of the oppressor, he will make them steady war no more. He's going to wipe out war. Look, listen to what it says in, in Psalm 46, 9. It says, He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. So this is talking about wiping out all the implements of war. In Isaiah, he's even talking about the uniform, the boots, and the cloak. He's going to take it all. They're not going to be any way to make war anymore. War will cease. There will be one final battle, if you can call it that. And none of us will be fighting. It says that he is going to trample the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God alone. God doesn't need our help for the battle. He didn't need Gideon's 300. Did he? No. In fact, all of this that's going on here, when we get to chapter 38 of Isaiah, we're going to meet a king named Hezekiah. Assyria is going to be outside the walls, threatening to wipe out all the people in Judah, holding the heads of kings. And the heads of kings he lifts up and he's saying, oh, these are the kings who trusted in their gods and their gods couldn't save them and neither will your God save you. And they go to bed, Hezekiah prays, Did God need any of them? One angel, one night, 186,000 gone. 
God delivers. He told the people, you're never going to have to be afraid of Assyria. Because they're not going to touch one hair on your head. God is able. He's going to make war to cease. Now look at Isaiah, or I'm sorry, look at Psalm 46, verse 10. This should remind us of something else. So he's going to wipe out war. What's it say next? Be still and know I am God. That's kind of the point, right? How does that Israel become this one? How is that Israel going to be touched by God, their sins purged, to become the Israel we see in the future? How is this Jackie over there, broken mess, going to become the the Jackie that's been touched by God and can be used of him? How's that all going to happen? Well, it's not going to be anything that I do. I just need to be still and know that he is God. He is able. He is able to do abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. The Lord says, I will be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in all the earth. Everyone will know. The Bible says when he returns, every eye will see him, right? And I'm not going to have to wonder. And I don't think you're going to have to watch it on CNN. I think it's going to be a big enough deal. Yeah, you're not going to miss that. No, would you miss it if the sun all of a sudden stopped shining? Nope, you, you'd be aware, don't you think? Yeah, I think you'd be aware. You'll be aware when the Son of God places his feet on the earth. He will cause war to cease. Well, how? So all of these are answering questions, right? The light will come, break the yoke of the oppressors. How's he going to break the yoke of oppressors? He's going to make them study war no more. How's he going to make them study war no more? The next verse, 4. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That's a very important phrase. For unto us a child is born, there will be a birth. There will be a birth. God, Emmanuel, God with us. God is going to be born. I know he's talking about God because the next verse. For unto us a child is born emphasizes his humanity. Unto us a son is given emphasizes his divinity. Given a son, the son is eternal. Read Psalm 2. Read Psalm 2. The son, he's, he's been with God. He, John would say it like this. In the beginning was the word. Right? The word was with God, face to face. That's what that word means, with. Face to face. Not, not some weird way, face to face. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh. Unto us a child is given. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. For God so loved the world that he gave what? His only begotten of unfortunate translation. Monogonaeus is the Greek word. He gave his one and only unique son. He gave. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And what is he going to accomplish? The government shall be upon his shoulder. The government. So he's royal, right? He's ruling. This child is going to rule. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. If for the last um, 25 years that I've been in ministry, roughly, people always tried to mess with this part. So I'm not going to mess with it at all. I'm just going to tell you what it says. It says what you're reading. There's no, there's no confusion until you want to be dumb. It's pretty easy to see, no? I think it's pretty easy to see what he's talking about. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We'll delve into that. But all of this is coming from a person. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. Listen to what Malachi said. Malachi 2.17 You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is God? Where is God? Where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before who? He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will come suddenly to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, God of the angel armies. God says, I'm coming. You keep saying, where's God of justice? How is this Israel become that Israel? How is this world ever going to be reconciled? God says, I'm coming. I'm going to one day suddenly show up to the temple. We've all heard that story before, right? Jesus coming in. He said, my father's house should be a house of... But you've made it a den of thieves. And when he leaves it, he says, see, your house is left to you desolate. From that point forward, after the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, where's the temple? Is it a building? Paul would say, your body is the... Temple of the Holy Spirit, right? God lives where? In you. You could never build the house big enough for him anyway. So God lives in us. Colossians 1.15, it's speaking of Christ. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That word ek in the Greek means over. The firstborn over, the preeminent one over all of creation. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 1.19 So in Christ, how much of the fullness of God? All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 20 And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Who is going to be doing the job of reconciliation? Makes that Israel this Israel, makes that Jackie this Jackie does... The deliverance of the people brings us to joy, breaks the yoke of the oppressor, ends war, and sets up a government which will never end. Yeah, who's doing that? Jesus Christ is. He has a ministry of reconciliation. Verse 27 of Colossians 1. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the accumulation, uh, the incarnation of Proverbs. Remember our study of Proverbs? What's the point of the book of Proverbs? 
A lot of people want to say just wise, pithy sayings. You know, what's going on in Proverbs? Proverbs is the pursuit of the personification of wisdom. In all you're getting, son, get wisdom. Do whatever it takes to get wisdom. Wisdom is described as being God. In fact, is it possible that you could be God without wisdom? Could there be a day when wisdom wasn't with God? Nope, that that wouldn't work, right? The personification of wisdom is the second person of the triune God. It's Jesus Christ. He's described for us in three separate chapters in the book of Proverbs. And he is described as wisdom incarnate. Wonderful counselor literally means, Oh, wonder at the counselor. Wisdom. He has wisdom. He's the personification of wisdom. Then he says, in case that's not enough for us, he is El Gibor, mighty God. Now I've had people tell me mighty God, that word could also mean big hero. Well, okay, it can. But is that what it means in Isaiah? Well, we don't have to go far to figure it out. If you turn the page, you come to Isaiah chapter 10. In Isaiah chapter 10, verse 21, talking about Yahweh, he says, A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to El Gibor, the mighty God. Not talking about returning to the mighty hero. So how does Isaiah use El Gibor? Mighty God. How does he use it everywhere he uses it? Shocking. Mighty God. So what does it mean here? Mighty God. He's mighty God. El Gibor. He is the mighty God. Then, if that's not enough, He is the everlasting Father. Now, just the concept of that first word. Everlasting, eternal. Yeah, that should tell us this is something beyond just a human being. No? Which of you is eternal? You might say you will always exist from the time you were born born out into the future but that's not eternal what is eternal eternal means you always were and always will be there's only one person that's eternal Yahweh God is eternal he is the everlasting father Abiyad the one, uh, the one who sees the everlasting fatherhood. Everywhere you see Jesus describing his role with us is uh, such an incredible picture of this phrase. And then the last one, Prince of Peace. He's the bringer of shalom between God and man and between man and man. He brings peace. He will do it. He's the one that will accomplish it. He's the one that's going to do the thing that we've been waiting to be done. He's got, he's got the ability to put it all together. Verse 7. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be what? No end. It won't end. Daniel has a dream. Or actually, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. The dream has a statue. Different metals. Remember, head of gold, chest of silver, you know, uh, bronze, iron, iron mixed with clay. You guys remember when we did Daniel? Each one kind of uh, lessening in value. 
And what we discover is that all of the kingdoms of mankind, since the beginning of mankind, from Genesis to today, all of the kingdoms come up, they come into power, and they pass away. And another one comes up, comes into power, and passes away. And another one comes up into power and passes away. True or false? Nobody has an eternal kingdom of mankind. Does not happen. The statue is standing there and Nebuchadnezzar is looking at the statue. And all of a sudden, a stone not cut out with hands from the heavens hits the statue in the feet. And the statue is obliterated, turned into dust. And then this statue, or this uh, stone, grows into a mountain that fills all the earth. Biblical language, a mountain always refers to a kingdom. A kingdom not cut out with hands from the heavens is going to be established on the earth and there will be no end. There's no end to God's kingdom. There's an end to human kingdoms. No end to God's kingdom. What's it saying about this child who will be born, this son who will be given, the kingdom that he establishes, it will not have an end. There will be no end of its peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. One final kingdom. The kingdom of men is all going to fail. There will never be a political process that's going to solve our problems. Brother will never stop killing brother. Unless Jesus Christ rules and reigns in his heart. Brother will never stop. You cannot pass a law that will make someone stop killing someone else. You can punish them for it after they do it. That's biblical. But it didn't change what was in their heart. It just confirmed what was in their heart. Right? We can't change. We don't change people. By political process. We don't change people by law. We change people when they find themselves in submission to the king of kings. That's how you change people. That's how nations are turned around. That's how that Israel becomes this Israel. When she submits to her king. She will be that way spiritually. And when he returns, she will be that way physically. When I submit to Christ now, I am that way spiritually. And when he returns, I will be that way physically. I will study war no more. All those things will be changed. We will have the king to end all kings. The end of all political parties. Hallelujah and praise you the Lord. I can't hardly wait. Be a great day. Because he's the only just perfect king. And he needs to rule in the hearts of men. That's the key to finding any kind of semblance of peace in our world today. That Jesus Christ rules and reigns in the heart. But how is this all going to be accomplished? Look at that last phrase in verse 7. The zeal of Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, will accomplish it. Who does it? Do we do it? Do we establish His kingdom? Do we... Make it all happen. He says the, the zeal of the Lord of hosts. He's going to do it. God's going to do it. God's going to do it in his time. Now that child did come. 
That child did provide for you and I the opportunity that we can experience exactly what Isaiah experienced in Isaiah chapter 6. Where we can come before God and say, woe is me, I'm a mess, God, I'm, I'm messed up. And God will purge us of our sins. And then we can go forward in His power and His ability to be effective ministers on this world until the return of the King. Jesus told this parable, He said... Uh, a steward's master went away for an extended trip. And he says the, the good steward, he was faithful, ready for the return of his master. The lazy steward, he said, oh, he's not coming back anytime soon. I can do whatever I want. And he said that one, the master returns at a time when he did not think. And he was not prepared. But the other, he's always ready. Because he has submitted himself to the master. He's bowed the knee to the king. Paul would say, now I'm only looking for one thing. The return of Jesus Christ. Paul said, that's what I'm looking for. That's my hope. That is my Glory, that is my everything. I got my eyes on the prize. I'm looking for him. And that was the point of Isaiah chapter 9 and the culmination of the Emmanuel discourse. The idea that, yes, God's going to deliver you now, but there's a future deliverment, deliver from your sin, where God's going to save you from your sin, save you from the oppression of your enemy, save you from war. And it all starts with bowing the knee before the child king. We're going to be celebrating that in a couple of months. You ready for Christmas? Eh, Ready or not, it's coming. (laughs) Why don't you guys stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you for the opportunity we have. Study your word, God, to delve in, to dive into what your word lays out for us in Isaiah. God, I pray that we would just uh, begin to put the pieces, the puzzle together of the book of Isaiah so that we can understand the prophecies that are, are brought forth, so that we can see all these things, God, that you're describing, that you're pointing to, so we can... Uh, grow and understand, Lord, and and know that this is uh, the purpose for which you have come. That I can have that moment. God, you want me to have that moment just as Isaiah did. And that happened on the day when I looked at Jesus Christ and I said, I'm a mess, Lord. Save me. That's my Isaiah 6. That's this Israel becoming that Israel. This Jackie becoming that Jackie. And what God can do for us individually, he can do for us corporately, he can do for our nation. But it all starts right there. God, help us to understand the lesson of the prophecies you laid out before us of Emmanuel. So that we can have our lives line up with you. Looking for the king to end all kings. And we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.
you are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. Great are you. You give light, you are love, you bring light to the darkness, you give hope, you restore every heart that is broken.
Father, we just want to thank you for this Wednesday night to be able to sing songs of praise. And Father, open your word. Father, we pray for your spirit to leave with us as we leave this place, Father. We thank you for this evening. We ask all this through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.